Psalm 24, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of the, the questions that permeates the Bible is this question, who is worthy? Who is worthy to draw near to God, to even see God, um, to associate with God? Who, who is worthy to even do the work of God? In uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, who was a prophet, Isaiah has a vision, and he can't help but see as he sees God, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, who is worthy. In the book of Revelation, uh, John, uh, he has a vision also of heaven. And he sees a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Who is worthy? Throughout the Bible, we, we see time and time again people who have been confronted with the reality of who God is, his glory and his holiness, and have the same response. Who is worthy? Who can stand before this God? And this is really the question, I think, at the center of our psalm today. The psalmist asks in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who is worthy to draw near to the Lord? And although this question was originally asked uh, thousands of years ago, I think this is still an important question for us here today, whether you're here today as a Christian or not. If you're here today, not yet a Christian, maybe just exploring the faith, the question of who can actually associate with God is really important. Will I make the cut? Am I good enough? Can God love me? These are integral questions as you explore faith and pursue the truth. But if you're here today as a Christian, it's an important question as well. As a Christian, I think it's easy to live with, with the low-grade guilt, constantly wondering if I'm living a good enough life, wondering if God still loves me despite neglecting him in different ways throughout the last week and maybe indulging in things that we ought not to have. We wonder, is God's patience wearing thin with me? Am I worthy? Does God love me? This is a question Christians wrestle with all the time as well. At first glance, the answer to this problem that the psalmist gives keeps on a little bit more discouragement and despair. In verse 4, we read that the one who is worthy is he who has clean hands and a, and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false 
and who does not swear deceitfully. Do any of us meet this standard? Should we not all head for the doors and shut the service down? I mean, who is worthy? This is the question that we hope to answer this morning. And we'll do so first by looking at the context of Psalm 24. And then why uh, uh, this psalm was written and then kind of working through the sections of the psalm before we apply it to ourselves. So we'll begin with the context, which I hope will bring some clarity. Uh, So commentators actually believe that Psalm 24 was written uh, by King David to mark the return of the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, We read about this event in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 6. Now, why was this a big deal? Why did it matter that the Ark of the Covenant was coming back to Jerusalem? Well, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence with his people. It represented the fact that God dwelt in the midst of the Israelites and that his glory resided with them. The fact that this Ark was the place of the Lord's presence among his people brought them great assurance and hope. This high, lofty king dwelt among his grumbling, complaining, bickering, sinful people. This ark, though, that represented God's glory and and his presence among them, it it came with a lot of rules and regulations. Only certain people uh, could carry it. Uh, You couldn't touch it or, or look at it. In fact, the ark was kept in a place called the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber of the tabernacle. And only once per year, could the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark was. These regulations and and rules and ceremonies that not only surrounded the Ark, but but, uh, the tabernacle and the sacrificial system reminded the Israelites of the holiness of God. Their sin, their shortcomings, always before them, atonement needed in order to be cleansed, in order to draw near. Who was worthy to enter God's presence then was a central question to the Israelites. Their lives revolved around this answer. So eventually the Israelites, they enter the promised land and the ark finds a permanent home in the city of Shiloh. But generations pass, these stories of God's faithfulness were forgotten and actually there's superstition about what this ark does and it grows. The spiritual condition of the Israelites during the time of the judges got so bad that they thought the mere presence of the ark would guarantee them victory as they headed out into battle. But God's gifts, they're not magical objects. He does not bless flagrant disobedience. And so we read in Samuel that the Philistines actually defeated Israel in one of these battles and they captured the ark and took it with them. So the ark was gone, removed from the Israelites. The Philistines, they had captured it, and they actually treated this ark like a trophy. They thought it proved that their gods were more important, more powerful than the Israelite god. But uh, the Philistines, they soon learned that this was not the case. The Philistine people who were close to the ark, they became afflicted with with tumors and disease. Uh, The Philistines worried about this ark and and what it was doing. They decided to move it. Uh, They bring it to a second city. But the same thing happens, more tumors, more disease, and so they move it again to a third city, and the same thing happens again. The Philistines, they realize this, this ark is unique and that they got to get rid of it because it's killing their people. And so they actually hook the cart onto, or the ark onto a cart, 
with a couple cows and, and trust that the cows will bring the cart and the ark where it needs to go. God faithfully directs the ark back to the Israelite city of Beth Shemesh. But when the ark gets here, the people, they forget the rules and they decide to look inside the ark, something strictly forbidden. God strikes down 70 of the people in this city. But those who remain, they ask a familiar question. Who is worthy? If he strikes down people who who simply just look in the ark, who is worthy to stand before him? A hundred years pass, the period of the judges ends, and eventually David, who wrote this psalm, he becomes king. David, he he sets out to finally bring the ark back to the city of Jerusalem. But his initial attempt fails because one of uh, the men carrying the ark, Uzzah, he stumbles and he touches the ark. And you weren't allowed to do that, something strictly forbidden, and so he dies. Fearing what the Lord might do to them and the others, uh, David decides to pause this journey. He brings the ark to another city, uh, the house, it's called in the Bible, of Obed-Edom. But there in Obed-Edom, they grappled with the same question, who is worthy? If Uzzah was struck down just for touching the ark, who is worthy? But God, he blesses the house of Obed-Edom while the ark was there. And this convinces David that that he should move forward in uh, bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And so it's this final journey into Jerusalem where the ark is taken, why Psalm 24 was written. So David wrote this psalm because this return of the ark into the city of Jerusalem after this winding journey involving death and and problems, this, this was a monumental day in the life of Israel because it represented God's presence returning, coming to dwell in their city again. This was a cause for for joy and celebration because God had not forgotten his people and he sought to dwell with them. Psalm 24 then is like a liturgy for this event, a, a call and response for the ark's return. As we contemplate that backstory, that context, uh, the questions and statements of Psalm 24 take on a new meaning. So we'll look at kind of the different sections here. It's kind of three stanzas in Psalm 24. The first section of this psalm, verses 1 and 2, remind us just who God is, whose presence is returning to the city in the ark. Well, who is it? It's God, the creator and sustainer of the world. It's the one who, he's the one who formed it and filled it and established it. All of the world, all of the earth belongs to him. He created it from nothing, and he rules and sustains it. God is not one God among many. He is God alone, holy and righteous. This is who has come to dwell with his people. We see, though, as as I began with throughout Scripture, that when we're confronted with the reality of who God is, it's fitting that the question is what David writes in verse 3. After seeing the holiness of God, the power of God in his creation and sustaining the world, David asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who is worthy? Who can draw near to God? And now you can understand the weight of this question for David and for the Israelites. 
They had seen people struck down for looking into the ark, for, for touching the ark. They knew intimately, in a real way, the holiness of God and what happens when those unworthy draw near. This question had weight for them because this question was life and death for them. In verse 4, David, he answers his own questions. But we see that the requirements that he lays forth are extensive. There is a requirement of purity both within and without. It's not only that you must do all the right things, so obey perfectly, give generously, never lie or, or cheat or steal or give into lust or selfishness. That in and of itself is not enough. For our hearts... They must be pure as well. In other words, our thoughts, our motivations must also be perfect. You must obey, but you must obey for the right reasons. But there's more because this person also must not lift up his soul to what is false. And this is getting at idolatry, chasing after false gods. These two are things that make a person unworthy. God demands ultimate, perfect loyalty. At this point, I, I hope you can see that, that as we look at ourselves, that no one actually meets these standards. No one ha has lived this way. No one is worthy. God demands the utmost integrity in every way. And this is, this is a problem. Uh, if being completely pure and upright is the prerequisite to dwelling with God, with worshiping with him, then we can't come. We do not make the cut. We failed. Should we not head for the exit? This is actually the central problem of the entire Old Testament. How could a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And how could a sinful people ever approach a holy God and not be destroyed? But this is the question that the New Testament seeks to answer for us. But as we read the New Testament and discover how this predicament is solved, we see that the answer was throughout the Old Testament all along. The answer for us this morning in our passage lies in the Ark of the Covenant itself. Or should I say on the Ark of the Covenant because on the Ark of the Covenant, on its lid, there was a seat. And this seat was called the mercy seat. So each year on the Day of Atonement, that was, remember, the one day the high priest could actually enter into the Holy of Holies and even see the Ark. The priest, on this day, they had to make various sacrifices of, of animals. And then they had to take that blood and sprinkle it atop the mercy seat on the Ark. The point conveyed in this imagery is that it is only through the offering of blood that the condemnation of the law could be taken away. It's only through blood that sin could be covered. The Old Testament is clear. The penalty for sin is death. Blood must be shed. And this sacrifice and ceremony symbolized cleansing for the people. But we actually hear about this mercy seat in the New Testament as well. In Romans, uh, we're told that God presents Christ as the mercy seat. Christ is presented as the one who can make us worthy. Uh, the New Testament, it, it uses this word propitiation, which is essentially the Greek word for mercy seat. So what do, what do those words mean? Well, it means that Christ, in his perfect life, 
and his atoning substitutionary death has satisfied the wrath of God against our sin and against us. Christ is our mercy seat. Through Christ, we are made worthy. But more than that, Christ is also the great high priest, and he is the sacrifice himself. Hebrews tells us that Christ has entered the holy place, the holy of holies, but not by the temporary sacrifices of goats and calves, as the Israelites had to do, but Christ has entered by his own blood. And by doing so, by entering in, we're told that he has made a way for you and for me to enter as well. When we look at Psalm 24, then, we can ask the question, does Jesus have clean hands? Yes, and so do all who have been washed by his blood. Is Jesus of a pure heart? Yes, and so are all who have been cleansed by him. Through the work of Christ, our hands and our hearts have been cleared and cleansed. This means that because of the blood of Christ, we are able to enter into the presence of God. When we hear Psalm 24, as I hope to be our call to worship next Sunday, when we hear this psalm, we don't have to add for the exits. We don't have to fear that we'll be found unrighteous. But rather, we can stand and sing and commune with God confidently, claiming his righteousness as our own. Christ has ascended the holy hill. Christ stands in the holy place. And the message of Christianity is not that we too must ascend the holy hill by living a good enough life, by simply trying hard enough, but rather that Christ trudges all the way down the hill. He enters into our sin, our brokenness, our messiness that surely would have killed us. And he straps us on his back and carries us up the hill himself, giving up his own life to do so. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Christ is worthy, and our hands and, and, our hands and heart are made clean by him. The final section of Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10, they actually act as a call and response when the ark was returning, kind of just outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And you can picture it. So, so the crowd is outside the walls. And they're saying, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Right? They're calling the people inside the walls. And then the people inside, they respond, who is this king of glory? And those outside, they answer, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. They, they call again, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Again, those inside the walls of Jerusalem, who is this king of glory? And those outside, they respond, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. See, the amazing reality of the gospel is that the creator and the sustainer, the redeemer of the earth, the king of glory, wants to dwell not only with you, but in you. He sees you for who you truly are, with all uh, your sin, with all your problems, with all your, your messiness, and yet he still loves you and wants you to dwell with him. Christ does not tire of showing mercy. His mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours is. 
It is unrestrained, like a flood. He is eager to show it, and as he gives it, we are made worthy. If you're here today, not yet a Christian, the bad news is that the truth is you are unworthy to draw near to God. Your sin has caused separation, and no matter how hard you try, you cannot close the gap yourself. But you can be cleansed. You can be healed through the work of Christ. Verses 7 to 10 remind us that God knocks at the door. The King of glory knocks. The creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the world wants to dwell in you. He wants to come in. Will you let him? But if you're here today and already a a Christian, you too were unworthy. But Christ has cleansed and forgiven you. You can approach him boldly. You can approach him with confidence. Again, we don't have to run for Psalm 24 when we hear it read. We can sing. We can commune. We can pray. We can gather confidence through Christ our Savior. Yet if if you're a Christian here today, this psalm does remind us that the call is for us to live a life with clean hands and, and a pure heart. The call is for us to not lift our soul up to what is false. Even though God does not tire to show mercy, disobedience matters. It causes real brokenness, real hurt, real pain. There are real consequences when we sin. Division, strife. And so Christians are called to live lives of obedience. But of course, this call to live lives of obedience is not so that you can earn your salvation. But it's because Christ has already brought you into the fold of God. And he has already made you worthy. Verse 5, it tells us that living this way brings blessings from God. It's not saying ease in life or that you'll be uh, blessed with a, a whack of material blessings. But it is saying obedience brings about a peace and joy that is only possible when we obey God and his word. Who can ascend the hill? Who is worthy? Christ is worthy. Look to him. Trust in him. He is our only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning confidently, boldly, thankful that in Christ we are made worthy. In Christ we are cleansed from our sin, forgiven, and made new. Father, uh, we pray again for those here today who may not know you, Father. We pray that, that they might come to you that you would enter into their hearts, that um, they might uh, be made worthy through your work. Father, uh, for all of us, uh, may we uh, never forget that we can come to you with confidence, with boldness, that we can enter in, not on our own strength, but through the blood of Christ. Knowing that, Father, would you, would you make us into a people uh, of prayer who boldly uh, approach you, who come to you with our, our needs, come to you with praise, that are eager to speak with you and commune with you, Father. Make us into people like this, so that as we go out from here into our our day-to-day lives, into our jobs, that your goodness, your grace, and your mercy, your holiness might pour forth from us, that your kingdom might come here in Halifax. Father, we ask this all in the name of Christ, who has made us worthy. Amen.